Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton, and this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. I think the big talk of town has been the steel and alumina tariffs that have been proposed by the Trump administration. Uh, Of course, we have some talk as of today, Thursday, about whether or not Canada and Mexico would receive some sort of exemptions here. But I think a broader question that we want to have is whether Canadian and U.S. relations are going to be affected in very serious ways. So we have with us one Chris Sands. He's a senior research professor and director for the Center of Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We go in depth with him all about Canada and U.S. relations. Welcome back to the program. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3 with the daily business news program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and the website, BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Kirk, been a bit of an action-packed last few days for Canada and the United States when we talk about maybe trade relations between partners, right? Ha- haven't heard anything about haven't this, heard Tyler. Yeah, okay, no, it's, it's, but you know what? <laughs> we're going to get up to speed. I'm going to have to learn this in a second here. Yeah. Well, somebody who can maybe fill <laughs> us in on some of these uh, blanks that we have going on right now and better understand what these proposed steel and aluminum tariffs mean in the wake of the Trump's announcements uh, last Thursday for Canada and U.S. relations. Well, it's Chris Sands. He's our senior research professor and director of the Center for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Chris, thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, so what do you think is up here? And it's a very general question, but what do you think is really up here in um you know, get inside Donald Trump's mind for a moment here, Chris, if you can. Uh, help, help me understand what, what do you think he's trying to play for here? Well, you know, steel and aluminum, really all the major metals are, it's the commodity markets. And Canada's very familiar with commodities, the price boom and bust. And uh, it's always the, a tough business to be in when the economy gets tight. And the U.S. has lost a lot of its production in this, in both metals. And They've been supplanted largely by exports from China, to some extent Korea, and in Trump's base across the Midwest states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, where he did very well, there's this perception that um, we lost this industrial muscle, we lost aluminum, we lost steel, and the jobs that go with it, and and that the establishment in Washington, D.C. just let it happen on the uh, argument that free trade is good, uh, not caring who, who paid the price. And Trump believes, I think, that he uh, needs to signal to those people who voted for him that he is going to fight for them, that he's going to fight to try to bring some of their jobs back, and he's willing to use a tariff to do it because he's not a traditional globalist or, or free trade um, ideologue. He's someone who thinks... You know, like with tax policy, you write the rules to try to favor the the people that brought you into office, and that <laughs> I think is what he's really after. Yeah. But I'm always trying to capture in my head, at least, like what this base is, because when we think of Republicans traditionally, they're in favor of you know free trade Definitely. across the globe. But Trump's base is a little bit of a different animal as we look at it. I'm just wondering how, in, in your view, this actually plays to this conservative base that you would think traditionally would be in favor of all this free trade here, Chris? Well, it's interesting. Trump has a base that doesn't exactly map with the traditional Republican base. I mean, I think a lot of people who voted for him were voting against Hillary Clinton as traditional Republicans. They wanted to pick a Republican candidate. But he got a lot of crossover voters, people who we might have called Reagan Democrats back in the day, uh, blue-collar, mostly men who... Uh, were willing to give Trump a try, even though they voted for Democrats in past elections, because 
for a change, he seemed to be talking about the issues that they talked about at the you know, Veterans Hall or at, in the Union Hall about what's happening to American industry. And I think that's very important to Trump, that he, he speaks the language that makes sense to his voters and he, he actually acts. For example, on NAFTA, which we're also, as you know, renegotiating, we went through several candidates in a row who uh, were pledging to get rid of NAFTA. Uh Um, Certainly Hillary Clinton, uh, Barack Obama in his day. And in this last uh, election, uh, Trump not only said he was going to do it, but then surprised everybody by doing it, renegotiating NAFTA. And so I think he he puts great stock in being a man of his word. He's promised people that he's going to act on their behalf. And whether these tariffs go through exactly as we heard them in the last couple of days or whether we're going to get some nuance it will be secondary to the fact that for a news cycle, his message was, I care about these jobs. I'm going to fight to keep the jobs in America. And that, I think, got, cuts through a lot of the, the media space and reaches his voters and makes them feel that they can trust him if he later has to do a deal. Does meshing um, the tariffs with NAFTA signal that the American administration is actually getting quite frustrated at the lack of progress at, at the table? I think they are. It's it's funny. I was uh, speaking with um, speaking with a friend of mine in the administration, and what kept coming up was the Nixon import surcharge in 1971. And and for those of your listeners who don't remember or or who have the vague memory of this from uh, from class back back in college, the Nixon import surcharge was a a 10% across the board charge on all imports, sort of like an across the board tariff. That was the result of the Nixon administration, which was facing a balance of payments problem, basically importing a lot of inflation and getting very little help in the Vietnam War and other priorities for, for the United States from its allies. Quite frustrated that allies weren't stepping up. And as a prelude to that import surcharge, there was the fight over the auto pact, which had been signed in the Johnson administration. But Richard Nixon felt that Canada, in pursuing investment commitments from GM, Ford, Chrysler, and American Motors had cheated and resented the fact that Canada was trying to get a leg up with new investments in Ontario rather than let the companies uh, pursue their own strategies as they would. And so there was a kind of venom in the Nixon administration over Canada, which rather than being the stalwart ally in Vietnam that Canada had been in Korea in World War One and World War Two, rather than being on side on economic policy trying to help all of North America do well, Canada sought to advantage itself without bearing some of the burdens of alliance, and the U.S. decided that Canada would not be exempted. They'd be punished mm-hmm. uh, with this import surcharge, and Ottawa was furious because they couldn't believe that they weren't being exempted or accepted from from the application of the tariff. It's very much a similar dynamic that you have here where the calls from Ottawa that Canada should be exempted or or from Mexico City that Mexico should be exempted are met with a kind of um, resistance to carve-outs, resistance to exemptions because they want to make a point here and that point is that the U.S. is trying to reorient its position in the global economy and it expects Canada, Mexico, and other allies to be helping, not trying to defend the old order. Um, That's going to be a tough one for everyone to navigate because there's a lot to defend in the old order, but uh, it's part of the challenge of dealing with an economic nationalist uh, that we have in, in the White House today. Well, Canada says that they would take retaliatory measures in this instance, but what is really on the plate for Canada? What are the options that we have on the table here to move forward with uh, these tariffs that are being proposed? 
Well, I think it's tough. Um, we've had a couple of trade fights over the years where Canada has talked about retaliation. It's just very hard to do in a highly integrated economy without hurting yourself. And of course, the U.S. is is so much bigger that it can take a few punches and still stick to its guns. So what I suspect is probably the best strategy going forward is to allow this to move into the U.S. courts and look for sympathetic interests in the U.S. and help them to bring this case. Uh, I'll explain that. Um, Donald Trump used uh, a 1962 law that Congress passed to give the president the ability to levy tariffs in the interest of national security. Um, this was meant during the Cold War for uh, to either stop exports of something that's vital or stop imports that might be hollowing out a, an important capacity for the defense industrial base in the U.S. It went from that national security crisis to an across-the-board tariff proposal that doesn't exempt key allies like Canada, who are very much part of contributing to the inputs of our of our defense industry. So that's one of the reasons Secretary of Defense has been uh, quite vocal in, in opposing the application of the tariff to Canada or even to European NATO allies. As a result, what I expect to happen is that once the tariff has been formally uh, issued, I expect uh, a big corporate interest, maybe Toyota, because I think they might be in a mood for this fight, to bring a case in U.S. trade court and challenge the national security premise of this particular tariff. Mm. And we saw earlier last year, I guess, earlier in the administration, uh, courts willing to grant injunctions and get in the way of the president's plan to have a moratorium on new immigration or refugee claims from certain countries uh, we, we talked about it as a Muslim ban. It was really a, a moratorium until we could figure out a better way to get a, a background check on some of these individuals where you didn't have a government that was cooperating with us. Um, th that's a fairly normal use of, of executive authority to enforce the law, and yet courts were willing to stand up on the idea that Trump was uh, somehow being unreasonable or prejudiced in making this decision, and his basis for making the decision was wrong. As a result, I think that if courts are willing to intervene in the executive's use of its Article 2 under our Constitution executive powers. When you have something that's Article 1, which is the powers of the Congress, because Congress controls tariffs, not the president, and I think there'll be even more likelihood that, a, that you'll find a circuit judge who will grant an injunction and say this is, this is baloney, this is not a national security uh, issue. And if it had been more narrow target, targeted at China, that might be upheld, but not when you're going after countries like Canada. That'll create an injunction, so nothing will happen. And then probably the Trump administration will do what it's done in the past, which is come up with creative new ways to get, try to do the same thing. That's what they did with the immigration ban. We went through several rounds of waiting for things to happen yeah. until they could find something that might pass. I think we're going to be in months of that. Meanwhile, you heard um, Robert Lighthizer and, and also Secretary Nuchin uh, of the Treasury suggest that it may be possible for uh, Canada and Mexico to be exempted as part of the NAFTA negotiation. And I think that goes to the other story here, which is that the U.S. is frustrated that we've made only limited, positive, but limited progress on the NAFTA renegotiation, and they want to kickstart the negotiations into high gear with the goal of perhaps finishing an agreement by the end of this calendar year, um, which is ambitious, but it's a new timetable. We thought maybe we'd get one as early as March. Uh, it's clearly not going to happen. But yeah. that impatience from the U.S., linking it to something that's clearly got the Canadian and the Mexican attention fixed on it, the steel and aluminum tariffs, maybe a way of trying to create some momentum going into the next round. 
that will get us to an agreement. Let's take a small break with uh, our guest, Christopher Sands. He's a senior research professor and director of the Center for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University, one of our most prominent voices on Canada-U.S. relations. We'll be back with our conversation. Stay with us. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600 at 604-714-3600, or else check them out on their website at manningelliott.ca. We're going to continue our conversation with Chris Sands right now. And welcome back to the program. You're listening to Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Kirk LaPointe. And I'm Tyler Orton, and we're continuing our conversation with Chris Sands. He's Senior Research Professor and Director for the Center of Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We're, of course, discussing U.S.-Canada relations, especially in the wake of the tariffs that were announced last week by U.S. President Donald Trump. A lot of fallout that we're still gauging here, and I'm very curious about what this means going forward with regards to NAFTA. It's been a bit of a quiet, you know, seven negotiations, renegotiations so far, and it really uh, ended on, uh, I would say, an adventurous note, so to speak. But what can we expect maybe from round eight if Donald Trump is essentially using this as leverage to a certain degree, Chris? Well, I think it's interesting when you heard the statements from the uh, from Christia Freeland, Canada's foreign minister, from uh, the Mexican economy minister, Guajardo, um, everyone was being very cautious to praise the progress to date and to focus only on NAFTA. In fact, Christy Freeland said, you know, the issue with steel and aluminum tariffs is one between us and the U.S. Department of Commerce. USTR is a separate entity. And so while we're talking NAFTA, we're not going to talk about those tariffs. We're going to leave those out to be resolved in the normal process. I think there's a worry on both Canada and Mexico's part that these new tariffs will so rattle uh, their political leadership that they'll taint the NAFTA negotiation and make it harder for uh, for Canada and Mexico to actually conclude a deal. Yeah, there was uh, some fear that that Canada and Mexico might just walk away from the table in in disgust at the idea of these tariffs. Well, you could see the measured response from both uh, Justin Trudeau and Bill Marneau in the last couple of days. Uh, neither of them, is, I mean. Calling them completely unacceptable, I suppose, is about as strong a language as you're going to get out of the Justin Trudeau at the moment. But ultimately, does this suggest that really his own strategy with Donald Trump just isn't going to work? That at some point, you know, Donald Trump becomes Donald Trump and, and you can't charm him that way. I think there is a limit to how far you can uh, charm Donald Trump. I think he's... Uh, He's an interesting figure. He has been very consistent. And I think often those of us just sort of watching uh, the administration unfold um, have been surprised that he's actually done what he said he was going to do, uh, yeah. followed through on the kind of pr uh, bold language of his, um, of his campaign, because we're so used to politicians who don't. Um, I feel like the president and prime, prime minister, their relationship is, is best used as a kind of fire department for Canada-U.S. relations. It's where you go when things have started to, to go off the rails. But day-to-day, -day, most of Canada-U.S. relations comes fine without their involvement at all. What's difficult about Donald Trump is that he is pushing an agenda which is very much uh, a challenge to the way Canada's been doing business. I think it's very hard then to ask him to help put out a fire that he actually helps start. <laughs> and 
where I worry a little bit, and, and this is very not meant to be sort of harsh criticism, but maybe just a reaction. I think that there's also a degree to which the prime minister is in a very difficult position trying to mediate between this very aggressive U.S. administration and the Canadian public, which by and large, if we believe the surveys, doesn't like Donald Trump very much as a character. He's sort of brash and rude and, and whatnot. They've not taken to him well. In the early part of the Trudeau government's exchanges with Trump, um, there was pretty broad backing for the go slow, sunny ways, try to get along with a guy, make friends with people in his administration as a bulwark against change. And you saw that extended as the as the prime minister reached out to governors, uh, with premiers doing the same, reaching out to state governors and, and members of Congress to try to build new alliances that might be helpful in case the uh, the NAFTA agreement went badly, negotiations went badly. But Trump has reacted to much of that with hostility. He has suggested that Canada's pretty smooth and might not be entirely trustworthy when it talks about trade because they're playing a self-interested game and suggested to governors that they all call to complain about NAFTA, but maybe they need to be questioning what Canada's up to. Um, and I think that shows that the Trudeau strategy has been effective, but also that it's been noticed. And that pushback from Trump is um, is something that's going to push I think Trudeau to think about how he communicates to Canadians that he's working hard for them without convincing the Americans that he's up to something. Does he have to communicate differently though with the president? Does he, can you really bow up to Donald Trump or do you have to be this smooth operator? You know, I think that it's hard to know exactly what's going to work where I think Trudeau has run into trouble um, is in the way that what he has done in Canada has been perceived by the Americans. Uh, the Trump administration is full of, you know, your typical New Yorker, tough guy, somewhat cynical uh, operators. Mm -hmm. And early in the NAFTA renegotiation, uh, you saw the Trudeau government re-embrace this progressive trade agenda, a series of, you know, very feel-good things about gender equality and the role of First Nations and so on. That didn't really compute in terms of American politics. It sounded a bit off topic and, and a bit odd. Worst yet, it might have sounded a little bit to some Americans like a kind of warmed over Obama agenda, which is an anathema to the Trump people. And the, the way it was read often here was that Trudeau believed that with Jagmeet Singh becoming the leader of the NDP, that the liberals uh, faced a threat on the center left and they needed to communicate to you know, left-of-center voters in Canada that the Liberals were willing to champion progressive causes, but would do so with the power to be elected, actually, and form a government. And so crossover voters should go, instead of voting for the NDP, and vote for the Liberals. We then saw in a couple, a month and a half later, that Canada filed a, a broad attack on U.S. trade remedy law uh, at the WTO, based on the softwood lumber experience, which hasn't gone very well, but challenging the way the U.S. protects its industries at home. And that was perceived the other way, that this was a move reflective of the fact that Trudeau was concerned that Canadian, the Canadian public was, was losing confidence in the sunny ways as a way of dealing with Trump, seeing so many trade actions landing on Canada's uh, desk with a thud. They were starting to feel that, that Trump was playing Trudeau as for a chump and taking advantage of his uh, sunny ways, but still playing hardball. And I think the Trudeau government felt that this WTO case would show that Canada could fight back. 
But at the same time, that only outraged Americans who said, what are you trying to pull? You want an NAFTA deal with us, and you're attacking the way we do trade policy that's near and dear to our hearts. So I understand the rationale behind a lot of what Trump's, Trudeau has done, and I think that the Trudeau government has tried to do uh, a very good job of balancing between all of the different tensions that they have to reconcile. But the Trump administration's made that much harder by calling Canada's bluffs, by pushing back, and assuming the worst possible motivations behind what Canada is doing, rather than seeing them as you know just another government trying to keep its voters happy, which you would think that Trump himself could understand Jeez, at I, a very peace political level. That hurts our feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Chris, uh, we're seeing some pushback from other jurisdictions, EU, Canada. We're also seeing pushback within you know the government uh, itself. I'm thinking about uh, Paul Ryan. The uh, Speaker of the House there, he's actually, you know, pushing back against these tariffs. And are we actually expecting Trump to actually bow to any political pressure? Is is there really just no hope for pressure from outside to actually change anything here? Yeah. What are we into? Oh, no. (laughs) I I actually think that there is a possibility to, to change the direction of this. And one of the good things, if you can say that, about the way in which the NAFTA renegotiation has unfolded, in my view, is that... A lot of voices that we weren't listening to or that weren't speaking up about trade and globalization are getting attention that they haven't done in the past. Uh, you have to start with the Trump voter who uh, has been complaining about NAFTA since it was ratified in the Clinton administration with nobody much helping uh, or not, not seeming to listen. But we've also seen a real resurgence of business voices and not so much in Canada, but certainly in the United States. The business community was was very much engaged in getting NAFTA ratified, but the politics in the U.S. were were pretty intense. And subsequently, big businesses in the U.S. tended to stay silent on the trade debate. They wouldn't fight for big trade agreements. They didn't want to have that bad publicity. And so trade got a bit of a bad name as a result. And now you're seeing businesses speaking to their workers, speaking to their communities about how trade with Canada, trade with Mexico is actually keeping them competitive and, and contributing to jobs. You also seen, and this is another bit of inclusion that I think is great, Canada and Mexico talking directly to a lot of Americans and being part of this debate internally. It's really something that you know traditionally Canadians have worried about, you know, kind of getting involved and interfering in American domestic politics. But it's become more and more necessary to talk directly to congressmen. And you saw the prime minister come down and speak with Kevin Brady. Uh, in a closed session uh, on Capitol Hill, something that Sir Johnny McDonald or 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 even Lester Pearson would have found quite shocking. Or even, was his, all even, his, even his father would have uh, would have found that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was beneath the dignity of a prime minister to talk to a mere House of Representatives yeah. member, and yet uh, that barrier has clearly been broken. And Canada's engaging wherever it finds a, a good ear. And the Mexicans, to their credit, have been doing you know maybe a little less out front, but they have definitely been trying to do that as well. We've also seen states and localities, provinces like British Columbia or the mayor of Vancouver, never really dealt with trade. They simply talked about the economic development implications, were glad to have foreign investment, that sort of thing, but saw trade policy as a federal responsibility, and they didn't really engage. Now you see communities talking about how they fit into the global economy, and you see mayors and city council members, uh, premiers, uh, provincial uh, representatives coming forward and starting to talk about trade in the global economy in a way that I think is, is long overdue. So there's been a lot of new uh, engagement in this debate, which 
the bad side of that is it makes consensus harder. There are too many voices. Everybody's disagreeing with each other. But in the long run, I think it's good for our, uh, for both Canada and the United States to have a much more uh, open discussion of where we're going in this world. Uh, I think we'll have a lot of disagreements, but we maybe I'm being too rosy, but I think at the end of the day, if we come to a consensus, it'll be a consensus a bit more durable than the one that gave us NAFTA in the first place. Excellent. Chris, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. You're absolutely welcome. Anytime. That's Chris Sands, Senior Research Professor and Director of the Center for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And you're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Tyler Orton. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. Stay with us. Very fascinating insights from Chris Sands. It was a fun show to talk to him, and we hope to have him back on soon. But for now, I want to encourage everybody to leave us a positive review, give us some ratings on iTunes. That helps even more people find us in the online world. And uh, for now, you can find my stories at BIV.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Reporten. And this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott, accountants and business advisors. Until next time, this has been the Business in Vancouver podcast.